In our new series called Stand Your Ground, um, we are uh, we are starting a new series that will take us a couple weeks to get through, and it's a series in the book of Daniel. Um, it is something, it's based out of the book of Daniel, and it's going to be what I consider a practical and a tactical message. Uh, we, we talk practically around here. We, we try our best to make sure that you can understand the word of God, that you can apply the word of God and use it in your own life. And that's our goal in this series too. As we look at the book of Daniel, we're going to find some interesting things that help us in, in the culture that we currently live in. So really the question that we have is how do you stand firm? How do you stand your ground in a culture that isn't standing for much of anything, in an ungodly culture? Is it even possible to do so? And I think that it's not only possible, Daniel not only endured the culture that he was in, but he also impacted it. He influenced it. So the dilemma that we face as believers is a dilemma that's 4,000 plus years in the making. I don't know if you know this or not, but Abraham's parents were what we call polytheists. And I could call on some of my students from CCA who we've been talking about polytheism. I won't put them under the spotlight right now, but polytheists believe in many gods. Abraham's parents were those people who believed in many gods. Yet God showed himself to Abram and called Abram and Abram believed in him and changed the course of history. But that also meant that Abram was called out of the culture that he currently lived in. In fact, God said, pack your bags. He said, where am I going? God said, I'll tell you when you get there or when you're on your way. That's my paraphrase, okay? Um, Is that he said, just pack your bags, trust me, believe me. And God was bringing him to a place of belief. But from those days until these, there's been what I call a cultural dilemma, We need to understand that we who believe in God must reassert our values, the values that are truly God's values in our lives instead of the current culture's values. Think about the stories that you've heard in the book of Daniel. You've probably, if you've ever watched VeggieTales, you know these stories. Uh, But if you ever went to Sunday school as a kid, you know these stories too. Shadrach, Meshach, and... Abednego, okay? Um, you know about the fiery furnace. You know about Daniel in the lion's den. So if you grew up in church, you know some of the stuff from Daniel. Well, Daniel is a 12-chapter book, and I want to give you some context that will help you understand. It's written about 500 years before Jesus Christ shows up on the scene. There's the first six chapters are history. They tell about history and what's going on in the current time. But the second six chapters in Daniel actually are something that we call prophecy, which an easy way to think of that is a peek into the future. It's God showing the future and what's going to happen. Now, that part of the book can sometimes be confusing to people, but we'll navigate that the best we can. So what happens in Daniel is the nation of Israel is being Uh, They have rejected God and they are being exiled. They are being brought in as slaves to another country and another government. They're paying the price for rejecting God. And I believe this happens in every generation that rejects God. We see it now in America. We see it all over the world. We see it in our education system. We see it on our, in our jobs. We see it in entertainment. When we reject God, there will be a price for us to pay. But the thing is, it's not just a price to pay right here, right now. 
it actually affects generations to come. So there's a, a big job in front of us. So in Daniel and throughout the books of the Bible in the Old Testament, prophets prophesied, they, they gave this warning to the people, and they said, if you reject God, if you stop believing in him, if you stop obeying him, bad things are going to happen, and you're going to become the slaves of other people. Each time this happens, it's God's punishment for unbelief and for disobedience. It's because they did not believe in God, they didn't trust him, and they disobeyed his word. So in Daniel, the kingdom of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq, okay, we know that place geographically, the, the government there and the name of the place would have been Babylon. It's the one that they become enslaved to. Solomon's temple was destroyed and the dynasty of David, King David, came to an end during this exile. So that gives you a little bit of a picture of what's happening in the book of Daniel. They've been captured, taken away as slaves. The king from Babylon has now destroyed the city of Jerusalem. There's hardly anything left anywhere. And now they are in a completely foreign culture. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. Daniel chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 6. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. He took control. Verse 2 says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. I want you to think about this and think while you read. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, notice that's a lower G, and placed the vessels, talking about the vessels from the house of God, in the treasury of his own God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. I'll stop here for just a moment and let you know, in scripture, when you see this word eunuch, it could be translated commander in a lot of scenarios. But in some context outside of Israel, it referred to a castrated male who was in charge of certain aspects of the palace. So he could be trusted to help out with the women in the palace without any type of infidelity or anything happening because he had had something happen to him to make him docile and ready to serve. So this guy is the chief eunuch and he's in the service of the king in some capacity. He brings some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, verse four, youths without blemish of good appearance, just like your pastor, and skillful, I'm not so skillful, in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now, I don't want you to get confused. We've talked about Babylon, and we're going to say Babylonians, but now there's this word Chaldeans. It's another word for Babylonians. It was for the, the prehistoric or the ancient people of Babylon and who they become. Verse 5, listen to what it says. It says, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. 
Verse 6 says, Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. If you go back to verse 5, you'll notice there, it says that they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. They were to be taught and indoctrinated with a new culture, into a new language, and into the literature of that place. That was how they were going to do it. So this is what culture wants to do. The king not only did that, but he then assigned them a daily amount of food from his table. And I know you're probably thinking, well, praise the Lord and pass the mashed potatoes. But that's not the case. This is a pagan king who serves a pagan set of gods who is eating at his table, who has had these foods prepared for his own liking and his own taste. We come to find out they would have broken many, if not all, of the dietary laws that the Jews had. So they would not have been what we consider today the word we use kosher, as in prepared in a certain way. They were not kosher. Also, they had something else because they sacrificed these animals to their pagan gods and the leftovers they brought and they cooked for the king. So they were double dirty. If you want to think about it like this, in the mind of a Jewish person who was there, they would have had, they would have been absolutely unclean. We have got to understand the times that we are living in. Culture has an agenda. Its agenda is to change you. And that's why it's important for us to stand our ground. That's what its number one goal is, is to change you. The enemy of God uses culture as his primary tool to shape and to change and influence society. Look at what happens in the next verse, in verse 7. It says this, And Ashpenaz... The, the captain of the guard, if you will, gave them new names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, you might say, well, that's a really funny sounding verse because there's so many different things and we don't talk like that. And what do those even mean? Here's the deal. Before we started picking names that we thought were cute, strong, or pretty, They actually chose names based on what they desired the destiny of the individual to be. And so the mothers of these Hebrew children, these boys, had purposely, intentionally named them these names. Now the king's guard, the commander that's helping them in this assimilation process, he wants to give them new names. Your name is a sign of ownership and a sign of identity. Ladies in the room who have changed their name as a result of marriage, it demonstrates that you belong to one another. Do you understand that? So we have a name that's been given to us, and in this moment, in that day, there is a name change, and they were anticipating that it would change their destiny. In fact, I find it really interesting. I don't want to go too far off in left field, but there are some name changes in the Bible where people gave people different names. One of them I think of is Joseph, and Pharaoh gave him the different name, which was an Egyptian name. And another one I think of is a man named Jacob. 
where God met him. He had a supernatural experience with God and God then changed his name. It used to be cheater, deceiver, liar, and now it was going to be something to behold. In fact, a people group for all of history would be known by the man who used to be a cheater, a liar, and this. So people change their names, or people change other people's names, and God also changes names in Scripture. And there's some interesting things uh, regarding that. But to people back then, receiving a new name affected your future and your destiny. And this is what Ashpenaz's goal was in service of the king, was if we want them to truly come into the king's palace and serve, then they ought to start looking like the king's servants. They ought to start having a name that we can call them that would not be one of these funny Hebrew names, but let's give them a Babylonian name. I want to show you what their names look like. Daniel means this, God is my judge. I looked up the definitions for these names using some resource material, and I found this to be really interesting. God is my judge. His Babylonian name that's given to him is this, Belteshazzar, and it means Bel, which is a false god, protect his life. It was actually used as an incantation or an invocation, a prayer to Bel, this false god. Hananiah means this, God is gracious, and yet Shadrach means command of Aku, another false god. Do you understand what's happening In this moment, they're being given a new name and a new identity by Ashpenaz, and it's directing their history, not their history, it's directing their future, it's changing them in this moment, at least in their minds, not in the Hebrews' minds, but in those who were Babylonians. Mishael means who is what God is. That's good stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, like the essence of God. This is awesome. But his new name, Meshach, means who is what Aku is, which would be their false god that they served in Babylon. Azariah means God is my helper, and yet Abednego means servant of the false god, Nebu. So they're polytheistic. They believe in many different gods in Babylon. And now these Hebrews have been brought into the king's service and given a new identity. When culture shifts, we have to remain grounded in who we really are. The Bible tells us that if we are followers of Christ, then we are children of God. You belong to him. You are not what the world tells you. You are not what your parents have told you. You are not what your somebody, fill in the blank, that bad relationship. You are not even what your own mind sometimes tries to convince you of what you are. You as God's child are who he says you are. So I know I'm dirty. I know I'm broken. I know I need him. But I also know that he calls me righteous and he calls me a friend. He says I'm in his family. So I've got to hold on because culture's desire is to change my identity. And I have got to stand against that. Watch what happens in verse 8. It says this, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself He wouldn't dirty himself with the king's food or with the wine that the king drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. I want you to notice how he submitted to authority even though he was in slavery. That's a challenge. 
It's a challenge in your everyday life to submit to authority that you don't like and you don't agree with. I could say amen and we could all walk out with a wound for that one. It's really hard. I said this week, I actually had a conversation with somebody at school, which is one of the places where I have to submit to authority. And I came to realize, and, and I thought this thought, it's one of the only environments that I'm not the boss. It's the hardest environment I work in <laughs> because I've got to do what they tell me to do and how they tell me to do it and when they tell me to do it. And that's not always fun. But I tell you what, something incredible will happen when we submit to the authority God places over us, even in the moments of disagreement, because there's a blessing knowing that we trust God and that he is the one who's truly in control. So... He, di he didn't go in, Daniel didn't go in and say, y'all are just a bunch of heathens, y'all going to hell. Right? I mean, that could have been what he wanted to say. Culture demands that you compromise your standard. And here Daniel says, we, we can't give in to this new standard that you have. That's why it's so important for us to stand our ground. And Christians are faced with this dilemma today in 2018 daily. I don't know if you know what the term moral relativism is, but I want to tell you, it's on the screen, it means that there's no universal or absolute set of moral principles to guide our thinking and actions. Okay, stay right there for just a second. As Christians, we do look to God for the principles that do guard and rule our life. He doesn't change, and neither do the principles that are found in his word. The people who believe in moral relativism would be those that say this phrase, to each their own, or who am I to judge? Or that's your truth. This is my truth. That's the people, those are the people who believe that morality is relative. But God's word is not morally relative. It trumps every culture it invades. It is absolute. Here's what moral absolutism is. It's the opposite. It says that there is a universal or an absolute set of moral principles to guide our thinking and actions. So we believe that God has set these moral absolutes in place and that as we obey them, we receive blessing and we receive favor and we please God and we know that we're his. When we disobey, we know we bring him dishonor or displeasure and that we cause issues to happen in our own life as a result. And the children of Israel saw this because of unbelief and disobedience. They were brought and put to a place of slavery. But God's word is morally absolute. It's critical that you understand me and hear me very clearly today. There are churches, even in our city, that do not agree with the things that are in the word of God. I heard the story about a man who's a, a believer, not here in Clinton, but in elsewhere, who's a, who's a Christian, and he had a Muslim friend. And his Muslim friend, he had tried to share his faith with the Christian, and the Christian had tried to share his faith, and they kind of felt like, you know, at odds at times, but... They were watching each other's lives, and specifically the Muslim brother was watching this Christian's life. And one day he got the boldness up, and he said this, You know what? I don't think you believe everything that's in the Bible. And the Christian man looked at him and said, Yes, I do. 
I absolutely do. And he's kind of like emboldened, like, come at me, bro. I can take it. The Muslim man reaches back his hand and slaps the man across the face as hard as he can. He says, now turn the other cheek. Do you really believe <laughs> what God's word says? That's a, that's a tough scenario to place yourself in. But do we really stand on God's word? Yes, there's a place in scripture that says, turn the other cheek. I don't like it either. I'd like to tear that verse out. Especially after hearing that story, I was like, uh, I don't know what I'd do. I'd probably punch him back. I don't know. So, but here's the thing. God's word is filled with absolutes. It is this way. It is, let me say it to you like this. It is God's way or the highway. And if you're listening with spiritual ears, you understand. He says in, in the New Testament, Jesus actually talks about the small, narrow path. But he says, but wide is the way that the world is going. And that leads to destruction. So it is really God's way or the highway. So it's critical when culture shifts around us that we reaffirm what we believe. In fact, let me say it like this. Culture changes, but God's word does not change. It doesn't change. You can try to make it change, but that doesn't work. Okay, let's finish up this passage by looking at verse 9 and 10. It says this, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Notice those two words, favor and compassion. I'm here to tell you, God can work a work in the heart of the person who is your authority to cause them to give you favor and to see you with eyes of compassion. That's a, his, I promise you, from what I understand in scripture, I can see this very clearly. It's as a result of Daniel's obedient submission that opened up the chief eunuch's heart to see him with favor and compassion. Verse 10 says this. It says, and the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king. In other words, let me put it to you like this. He's like, okay, great. I know you fear your God, but like the guy who lives in that palace, that's the one I fear. He assigned you to me and to give you this food and drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? So he's, 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 he's combating Daniel in this moment and he's saying hey listen I know you're saying like you just want vegetables and juice and stuff and like stuff that's like not prepared at the king's table but I'm telling you you're going to look like a weakling and the king is going to call me out on it he's going to have my head and you're going to dare put me before him look at what verse 12 says Daniel says test your servants for 10 days let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and then you can deal with your servants according to what you see. See, culture always wants to create a confrontation. That's why it's important that we stand our ground. As I said earlier, we see it in the education system. We see it on our jobs. We see it in entertainment. We see it in the news. We see it all around us. There is a confrontation. Your faith is going to be tested. Don't think it won't. 
This is not some pedestal that Daniel, the holy man of God named Daniel, gets his faith tested. There are believers whose faith is tested. It's tested by other things, whether it be financial or a health crisis or relationship battle, whatever it might be. But there will be a confrontation where your faith is meant to be tested because God loves you. We sit around and go, God, why do you hate me? Why did you let this happen? But God allows things in our life to be a test of our faith. When culture shifts, it's critical that we respond the right way. I believe there are two, maybe three extreme responses, and none of them, none of these two or three that I mentioned, are right. The first approach would be this. I would say it to you like this. It would be um, isolation. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen Amish people. They drive horse and buggy. They live out all by themselves. And they live their own sort of life and existence. No entertainment, no electricity, a bunch of other things. They are completely isolated. When they talk to an outsider, which I've talked to a few of them, uh, they, they like to talk shop and talk like the news of the day because they don't get the news of the day. They like, they're interested in those kinds of things. Many of them are true believers in God, but I believe they've got the wrong idea because they are so far isolated from the culture around them. They may be holy to God, but they are not influencing the culture that God has called them to. For a long time, we've, we've heard this phrase, if you've been in church, uh, in the world, but not of the world. Here's how I would say it. You're to be in the world because you've been sent to the world. But you've got to remember, you've been sent here. Not that you are just, well, I'm not, I'm not part of this. No, God puts you in the job that you have to influence the people that you have. God has placed those issues in your life where you can look and see his hand and say, yes, this is meant for others to see God's glory and to come to him. So we've got to look at it in this way. The other approach or response would be a dogmatic approach. Now, this is what I grew up in, and I'm thankful I'm not there anymore. I love my parents. I love the churches I was raised in. But it says, I'm right, you're wrong, end of story. I'm going to heaven. I guess that means you're going to hell. That's the wrong approach. (laughs) That's not going to get anybody to get into heaven if you're saying, well, I guess that means you're going to hell. See you later. Another one is this, and this would be the inclusive response. Now, this is where things get a little bit sticky and messy. This is when people say, oh, include everyone. They don't need to change. God loves everybody just the way they are. I'm here to tell you something that I think is really important. There's a generation of Christians that have now set aside the principles of God's word and the God of the word themselves, falsely thinking that they love people more than God loves people. Neither of these responses are correct or right. And I can't love anyone more than God does. And I have to read his word for what it is. I have to study it and understand it. I have to live according to it. That's why we say here at Celebrate Church, read your Bible or don't come back. 
I mean, you're welcome back, and we really do kind of want you back. No, but here's the deal. I understand skipping a day, but we're living in a culture that is invading our lives. It's invading my daughter's life in their friends at a Christian school. It's invading our life and our own home with their own iPads and the apps that they're asking to get and download. It's all the time lurking, trying to get in. And if I'm not reading the Bible, if I'm not being the family man I should, if I'm not sharing the stories of faith that I grew up with, that I know come from the Bible or my own testimony of faith, then what good am I to the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God will fizzle out and die out and stagnate and not grow if we shut our mouth. Truth revealed in love is life-changing. It's transformative. It, It really, really is. There have been moments that truth has, someone has confronted me with truth and they've done it in love and it hurt like you wouldn't believe. Maybe you've experienced something like that yourself. But the end result was the possibility, at least, for transformation. Love without truth, though, is pure sentimentality. It just supports and affirms people, but it keeps them in denial about their flaws. And here's the deal. We have flaws. Each one of us have flaws. Daniel has this incredible ability to stand his ground and influence his generation at the same time. Others did so in scripture, and so did Jesus himself. Jesus Jesus actually got himself in hot water a, a good handful of times because there were prostitutes, there were lepers, there were tax collectors, there were sinners of all sorts that found peace and solace in his presence. He hung out with these sinners, yet he never compromised who he was and what he believed. And you might be tempted to say, well, that's fine, because that was, remember, pastor, that was God's only son. He was also a human. The Bible says in Hebrews that he was tempted in every way, just as you and I are. So we've got to understand that there's hope. Listen to what it says in John 1, verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We'll read this throughout the Christmas season. We take some hope in this passage of scripture. It says, and we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father. But that last phrase will, it literally has changed the course of history. He, Jesus Christ, our savior, was full of grace and truth. Worship team, would you come join me? You see, grace invites us to be free, but according to God's word, the principle is found, listen to me and look up at me, listen, is that the the principle is there that truth is the thing that sets you free. Grace invites you to that freedom and it says, come on, everybody, anyone who will come, but truth delivered in love sets free the captive. Truth without grace is said like this. Truth without grace is mean, and grace without truth is meaningless. But together in the right proportions, I really believe that they are a good medicine. It's a medicine, it's a pill all of us need to swallow. We all need grace and truth. 
So for this cultural dilemma that we face, we need God's word and we need his spirit to lead us, to help us stand firm in our faith and to love well in the process. I know there are people in my life that are a challenge to me to love well. And there's also moments in my life that I find it challenging to stand firm in my faith. Even as a pastor, a guy who went to seminary, ministry for 20 plus years, there are still these moments that it's a challenge. So each one of us face these challenges, no matter where we are at on this road or on this journey. I want to ask you to stand today. I want to ask you to think about this and the cultural dilemma that we face because we truly do need God's word and his spirit. And maybe you're lacking one or both of those things. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, pastor, that sounds all good and well, but I actually don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ and I need one. I recognize my need. I'm a sinner and I need his grace and his forgiveness and his love. In this moment, I want you to be able to respond. But also, I want you to understand that if this message resonates with you today in some way, maybe you say there's an issue in the culture that I've faced and I've not done really well with, or I've started looking like a Babylonian rather than a child of God. Today is the day to just simply say, God, will you take me? Will you clean me up? Will you give me your grace again? Will you help me in this area of my life that I struggle in? Would you close your eyes for just a moment? If you're here today and you say, Pastor Dexter, I, I either have in the past or I've never, but now is my moment. I really do want to give my heart and my life to Jesus Christ. Would you just slip up your hand if there's anyone here that says, that's me. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Even if you've done it a few times before, you say, I've walked away, but I need him in my life. There are a couple hands that were raised. I want to pray with them. If you're here today and you're a believer, you're a member of our church, I encourage you to pray just quietly for those who did lift their hands and let's lift up a chorus of prayer. For those that lifted your hands, the Bible says we need to admit we're a sinner and that we need him. We need to declare that we believe him, that he is the son of God, that he raised from the dead for our sins and that he wants to be part of our life and he wants to change and shape our future. So I just want to encourage you to just pray a simple prayer like this. Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son and I know that I'm a sinner and I need your grace and your forgiveness today. I'm not perfect. I never have been but I know that you are. Lord, I accept your forgiveness today for all of my sins. I ask you to wash me and clean me and make me new. Help me to live this life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. In that simple prayer, God can change a heart when it's meant with all of our heart and when our actions demonstrate that change. But if you're here today and you've said, Pastor, this cultural message about this dilemma really touched me, I want us to do something different that we've, I don't, to my knowledge, I've never done before, and that is to put a prayer on the screen, and it just simply says these words, God, help me navigate the culture I live in. Give me the power to stand my ground and to extend grace and truth to those around me. Help me to love others and help me to impact my world for you. 
Help me to keep you at the center of my life. So in this next moment, the worship team's gonna play a song. I encourage you, pray this prayer, just the, the repeating of those words, simple to the Lord, but impacting in our heart and help us, Lord, help us to navigate the culture that we live in. Help us to truly be like Daniel and not only endure the culture, but to influence it as well for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.